Grace and peace, you're listening to United We Pray. Taking racial struggles to the throne of grace, United We Pray is a ministry devoted to prayer about racial strife, especially between Christians. We want to help Christians pray and think about race in ways that are biblical and helpful, clear and hopeful. You can learn more about our work at youwepray.com. That's U-W-E-P-R-A-Y.com, where you can find articles, old episodes, and more. I'm Austin Suter, joined by Isaac Adams and special guest, Dr. Jarvis Williams. So I'm not special. Dr. Williams is Associate Professor of New Testament (laughs) Interpretation at Southern Seminary. He is author of numerous books, including One New Man, The Cross on Racial Reconciliation in Pauline Theology, The Gospel in Color, Racial Reconciliation for Kids, and most recently, Redemptive Kingdom Diversity, A Biblical Theology for the People of God. He is husband, father, longtime friend, and contributor to our ministry. So, Dr. Williams, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Austin. Isaac, so good to be with you, brother. Hey, man. Great to be here. I would add only to that intro, former professor of mine. Yep. Yes, that's great. Uh, And then I just, I'm going to say this at the event tonight, love a lot, so much of your writing, but the gospel uh, in color, that one for parents and kids. It's so so, good. Mm. So good, brother. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, just... uh, just underline that one. Mm, so. Thank you. So you're here in Birmingham for a few days, and we wanted to abuse your generosity as much as possible and get several episodes out of you. Uh, but before we get into the event tonight, I wanted to just hear about sort of where you came from and a mm. little bit more of your story. So where are you from? Yeah, thank you for asking that. I um, grew up in a small town in eastern Kentucky, a little town called Red Fox, Kentucky. If you've been watching the news uh, recently, you know know that Eastern Kentucky was devastated mm. with a flood, historic mm. flood. And mm. the county uh, that I grew up in was the county that was hit the hardest, one of the mm. hardest hit counties. And as I recall, I think those who lost their life, most of them uh, through that flood were in my home county. Mm. And my home church is on the front lines there actually serving the Lord mm. and caring for needs there. So I grew up in a in a small you town, wrote, you wrote about you wrote a piece about wrote that a couple for pieces, yeah. Today. Christian and Dad wrote a piece, and I wrote an, a follow up piece after I went down to do some work uh, with. I, I published it originally with uh, SBTS okay, News, and then and then, and then um, Kentucky Today picked it up, and then Baptist Press picked it up right. as well. I put a couple of those in the show notes. So, yeah, yeah, thank you. So Eastern Kentucky is my native land, a little small town. Uh, good good people in that area. My family. They were not believers uh, when I was growing up, but they loved me dearly. Uh, I had aunts and uncles who, who and cousins who were raised me and and played sports for uh, coaches that shared the gospel with me, and had friends who were who were athletes who were believers, and so growing up, I was aware of the gospel. I was aware of. Jesus, there was no ideological sort of challenge or resistance to that. Growing up in that area, everybody sort of assumes the Christian worldview, at least when I was growing up in the 90s, or I was growing up born in the 70s and growing up in the 80s and the 90s. But my senior year in high school, when I was 17 years old, a dear friend of mine named Mary Catherine Prater, she had a, a, a terrible car accident and suffered a brain injury. And she was a believer. And she was a cheerleader, and I was a basketball player. So we had not only friendship in common, but we were both athletes. And she battled for her life for several days in the University of Kentucky Medical Center, which was about two and a half hours away from my hometown. And during that process of her fighting for her life, uh, I and several other several other young folks from our community went to the hospital and uh, her pastor at the time shared the gospel with a lot of us young people there. 
And make a long story short, through her, eventually she died. And after she died, uh, I and several other young people, classmates, uh, gave our lives to Christ. And out of that group, uh, several of us went on to to Christian ministry, to pursue Christian ministry. In fact, one of my dear friends gave his life to Christ the night she died. And I gave my life to Christ about a month later. And we ended up being college roommates and went to seminary together. And he's a pastor now in Eastern Kentucky. He uh, planted a church there. And uh, initially, when I went to went off to go to get theological education and, and pursue seminary, I went with the intent of being a pastor. I wanted a pastor of a multi-ethnic church somewhere uh, in an urban context. But the Lord didn't open those doors when I was coming to the end of my MDiv. So I did a THM, which is basically a degree in between the PhD and the MDiv. And during that process, I gave. Uh, I had a, uh, a job as a teaching assistant, and that professor gave me opportunities to teach. And I thought, well, you know, maybe this is what God's calling me to do. As I was serving in the local church and doing those kinds of things, I was also discerning some gifts in the academic ministry that I didn't know I had. And so went on into the PhD, taught at a Christian liberal arts university for five and a half years, and then after that, uh, around 2013, started teaching at Southern Seminary, and along the way, I was doing a lot of preaching, serving my local church, teaching Sunday school, and um, and now I'm a, I'm a non-staff pastor at my church in Louisville, Sojourn Church Midtown, uh, serving under the lead pastor, uh, Pastor Jamal Jamal Williams. It's a long way of answering your question, but uh, from Red Fox, Kentucky to Louisville, Kentucky, all in about five minutes. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> That's great. So did you go to college um, wanting to be a pastor? No, I went to college wanting to be an NBA basketball player, but my skills were not... Um, I was wondering when Kentucky basketball... <laughs> my skills were not up to the challenge. So I, um, you know, I, I went to... Initially, I committed to play baseball for a Division II school in West Virginia. It was a it was a college at the time, Nelson University, and um, it wasn't West Virginia University. It was West Virginia State College. Now it's West Virginia State University, if I remember correctly. So I went there. I was going to play baseball, but you know, I, I would, I'd just become a believer, and I hadn't really been away from home uh, a lot growing up. And I just sensed it wasn't. After staying there a couple of days, it just wasn't the right situation for me. So I decided to leave that college and to go to a little junior college. In Kentucky, and I played baseball and basketball for um, I played baseball for a semester, and I played basketball for a week, if I remember correctly. And just during that process, frankly, just really wanted to be uh, a better student. I wanted to study more, and I particularly was developing a, a desire to read my Bible more. Sort of getting this hunger for just knowing Scripture. I, I didn't grow up in church, so when I became a Christian, it was like cold turkey. I read the Bible for the first time when I became a believer. And uh, so during that process, I was shared that with my home pastor, and this was around 1996. And I said to him, you know, I think I'm going to transfer from the college where I'm going, and I'm going to come back home, go to a community college. I think the Lord's calling me into the ministry. And so he um, and my home church walked with me through all that. And my home church was the same church that my friend mm. who died that she went to. I joined that church. Uh, very powerful story. I was the first African-American in the history of the church to join wow. the church. And that church loved me, still to this day, loved me well, my family well. And through that ministry, multiple family members came to faith in, in Christ, so the ministry of that church. And and so they 
watched my life and gave me opportunities to preach during youth events. And they discerned that, yeah, the Lord was calling me, as best as they could tell, to some kind of ministry. At the time, I thought that would just most naturally be a pastoral ministry. I didn't even know a I could be a professor. I didn't even know that existed. And so my, my mindset was toward getting into seminary to get the best biblical and theological studies education that I could get to be a pastor. And although the doors for pastor ministry weren't opening up as I was coming to the end of my MDiv, that desire to pastor was always there. In fact, when I got my PhD and started teaching, uh, my first teaching job, I almost quit academic life to pursue full-time pastoral ministry because I was longing to be in pastoral ministry. And by God's grace, you know, he, he, he kept me in uh, academic life and he opened up pastoral ministry doors as a non-staff pastor, which I think fits my gifts perfectly uh, for what I think God's called me to do. Mm-hmm. And I just, I'll just comment on, <clears throat> I just love what the Lord has done in using the tragic death of your young friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just sounds like the, I mean, you know, someone, you know, coming to Christ that night, you coming not long after that death and resurrection, mm. you know, mm. Amen. in the same, in the same period. That just sounds like the Lord. Mm. It does sound like the Lord. And what also sounds like the Lord is a lot of this discernment happened in community. Mm. So it wasn't like you got converted and were hit by a lightning bolt mm. and stood up and said, I will go into ministry. Mm. Yeah. It was, that came through people speaking into your life, mm-hmm. folks in your church, and you you mentioned something about you know giftings being affirmed in was is that sort of a, a humble way to say that you realized you were pretty good at this school thing? Well, you know, I I was not good at this school thing. I was, shall we say, a late bloomer when it comes to education. I put all my eggs in the athletic basket, so to speak. And uh, when I became a Christian, I I developed the itch to just to want to read my Bible more. I think it started there. And then when I went off to college, I was I struggled with how do I be an how am I to serve as an athlete who's going to multiple practices throughout a week? And how do I at the same time maintain a good student athlete status? That for me that was difficult. How do you do because I didn't do it in high school. I didn't know how to do it in, in college. And at the same time, how do I also, you know, with the spiritual disciplines and keep those going the way I, the Lord, I think, wanted me to. And so I think the Lord used those moments to, to, to pull me away from what had been my idol, which, which were athletics, to more toward realizing that for me, to, that he not only redeemed the soul, but he redeemed the mind, and that he wanted me to use my mind in ways that would honor him in terms of Christian ministry. Now, just to clarify for your listeners, the Lord can use, you can be a student and an athlete at the same time. And the Lord doesn't call people out of um, something necessarily to call them into something. Sometimes, he, most of the time, I would argue, he uses people right where they are in the ordinary rhythms of life. And if you're a student athlete, you could be a student athlete for the glory of God. But for my situation, it was a clear calling away from something that I had loved and idolized for so long, namely mm-hmm. athletics. And then when I when I committed to go into ministry, my home pastor is such a wise man. He poured into me resources spiritually, theologically, and and helped me understand that I needed to get the best theological education that I could get early. Uh, a lot of folks go get an undergraduate degree at a secular university, and then they come to seminary. 
which I think is great. That's what I, I did. But I think that is great. But in my situation, I had zero Bible knowledge. I was, uh, at the time, I think I was 18 or 19 years old, and I needed I needed to grow theologically and intellectually as I was also growing spiritually. And so he shepherded me. I went to a little community college. He gave me assignments, theological assignments, sermon prep assignments, uh, all these little B things that I would eventually be doing the rest of my life. He did that for me, helped me do that before I even went to seminary. I love that. And then when I went to seminary, I w- or I went to I went to a little Baptist college. I I submerged myself in my studies. I had the I had the situation where I could just focus on school, didn't have to work a job, and I just studied because I never studied in high school. So I, and I just wanted I wanted to make up for that. So I studied hard, and then I would go home during the summers and do what I would call an internship. But really, it was just me following my pastor around everywhere he went, hospital visitations, ministering to people in crisis, nursing homes, evangelistic. Uh, uh, visitations, and then we would come back to the church, and he w- he would go to his office for study time and sermon prep, and then he would give me assignments to go off and to study a text, and then we would meet together and talk about what I'm learning, and we would do that do that before he would give me opportunities to preach. So, all that to say is that it was a process for me to to discern through calling and these sorts of things that, in addition to being someone who is liberated from the power of sin and death, that the Lord was also helping me understand that he has redeemed my mind and so used that for his glory and to spend my life seeking to grow in wisdom, knowledge, stature, and and so on and so forth. So you went from that to, what, about eight years of seminary? Well, I uh, see. I, I graduated high school in 96, so I spent 11 and a half years pursuing four different degrees. Uh, and all those degrees were theological degrees, but I spent a year of that time in a secular uh, higher education context. So uh, if you count undergraduate, uh, in the, the Bible college I went to plus seminary, I think that's about, what, 10, 10 years or so, and then one year of, or 10 and a half years of counting seminary, and then one year of, of um, secular school at a, at the undergraduate level, so 11 and a half years total. And I spent uh, eight and a half of those years in seminary, yes, yeah, but, but 10 and a half of those years pursuing theological education. Now, you mentioned being the first African-American to join your home church. Hmm. When you were in theological preparation, were there, were there many folks who looked like you, who came from your background, who were your peers? Yeah, I went to seminary in uh, the late 90s, into the 2000s. So I graduated from 2008. And so we had, over the course of my time in undergraduate seminary, we had, yeah, we had a, a multiple African-American students, uh, a lot of African students, uh, especially, but we did have a lot of African-American students at that time. Uh, if I recall, most African-American students, however, weren't biblical and theological studies majors. So I was a biblical and theological studies major in my MDiv, and and that uh, degree is heavy on the, the the exegesis side of things, heavy on the theological side of things. It's not a even though a lot of guys who do it want to be a pastor, it's not a pastoral track sort of degree. 
So the way the, the the way the degrees work, a lot of folks will end up in a particular track based on their interest for ministry. So for me, I thought if I wanted to be a pastor, I thought the only option for me was the biblical studies degree. I wanted to do languages, exegesis, so on and so forth. So I didn't have a lot of African American students in my biblical and theological studies classes, like exegesis classes, those sorts of things. But at that time, early two thousands, yeah, there were I think there were a lot of a lot more African Americans studying with me in seminary than one might hmm. think. Praise the Lord. Yeah, uh, uh, I think, if I, if I recall, I'm getting old, so I forget easily. Hey, man. Uh, hey. Uh, uh. Now, the things you were learning and your preparation for ministry, did you see that as sort of immediately applicable in the kind of church culture you envisioned yourself working? Hmm. Yeah, because I was, because most of what I studied as an student was exegesis. And uh, Bible. There you go. So yes, always so it was immediately always applicable. Now I, I will say this: I say this jokingly to, to folks that a lot of the well, half jokingly, a lot of what I've learned about practical ministry, I've learned it by being involved in the life of the local church. I, I learned it at my small Baptist church in Eastern Kentucky by following my home pastor around, who is from from my perspective, he's one of the Finest pastors anyone would ever lay eyes on. I mean, he is a pastor. He's a great preacher, but he is a shepherd of his people. And and just watching him and being able to to be around him helped me think about practical ministry before I went to pursue theological education. And so so when I was in a seminary context pursuing my MDiv, I wanted the more technical, exegetical high-level theological education because I had gotten a lot of the practical stuff. And then a lot of the practical stuff that I didn't get, I've learned that uh, on the ground. You can't learn. Seminary can teach you a lot, but it it can't prepare you for everything you're going to encounter in in, in practical ministry. But I think the theological and the biblical and the exegetical foundation that seminary gave me uh, has prepared me well to be able to have a text to hang on things that come up in practical mm-hmm. ministry. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that I don't have to go wondering where to look when this happens, that happens. I mean, I have a theological foundation, and maybe there are outside sources that, that I need help from uh, that are outside my lane, but having a foundation in Scripture was very practical uh, for me. But those other practical things that a pastor needs, uh, I didn't get those in my MDiv because of the structure of my degree program. If I did another degree track, I would have gotten some more of those things. Like I didn't learn how to baptize anybody in seminary. Mm -hmm. But there were tracks that taught you how to baptize, how to do the Lord's Supper. But I learned how to do the Lord's Supper by being a pastor. Uh, and I was learning on the ground as I, when I became a pastor. But, but there are practical ways to get ahead of those sorts of things in seminary if your degree program allows for that. Mine, mine just focused on, um, on, the, on the technical aspects of exegesis. Uh, so looking at your book titles, you've written numerous books about racial reconciliation, um, unity of the people of God. Why, why was that such a focus for you? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. If you look at my my academic stuff, most of what I've written academically is related to Paul's understanding of salvation in his early Jewish context. And so I've written 
technical books that virtually nobody will read except academics and secular presses. But I've also written uh, secular presses or more broadly evangelical presses. But I've also written, as you were saying, issues related to the people of God, reconciliation, ethnic issues. Because for me, much of what Paul is dealing with in his theological formulation is he's seeking to answer questions related to the Jew-Gentile problem. Uh, one example of that, to prepare the way to answer your question directly, is in Galatians, where he is writing to these Gentile Christians who are being taught by these opponents, these false teachers, that Gentiles in Christ need Torah to receive the blessing of Abraham and to be counted as the people of God. They need Christ plus Torah, the works of the law, is what these false teachers are saying, because they're Gentiles. And Paul writes to say, no, that Jews and Gentiles are justified the same way, by faith in Jesus Christ. Jews become the people of God the same way Gentiles do, through Christ. Jews have access to the blessing of Abraham, which Paul calls the Spirit in Galatians 3.14, the same way, by faith in Jesus Christ. And so then for me, a practical application of the Jew-Gentile problem, which relates to Paul's understanding of salvation, by which I mean, how do Jews and Gentiles become part of the people of God? Mm -hmm. A practical application, and, and how then shall they as the people of God live in community with one another as Jews and Gentiles in Christ? A practical application of that for me in my context in the United States is trying to speak biblical and theological truth into contemporary ethnic racial divides, which is much bigger, in my view, than the black-white divide. There are all sorts of ethnic divides. And so I think the, 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 the technical work that I do on Paul's understanding of salvation in his early Jewish context, it helps prepare the way for me to speak into issues of ethnic unity, redemptive kingdom diversity, reconciliation, because I think how image bearers relate to one another in Christ is a sociological matter, by which I mean that God has always been about the vision of saving some uh, from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation in his Jewish son, Jesus, and that by faith in Christ, Jews and Gentiles can become one new man by the power of the Spirit, by the blood of Christ and his victorious resurrection, and we live in pursuit of love for one another. And we love each other and we love our neighbors as ourselves. And to me, that seems like something worth thinking about, is how does the historical, theological situation of the Bible apply today? Hmm. And that's what I'm trying to do when I write, into, when I write on issues related to ethnic unity, redemptive human diversity, uh, these sorts of things. It's a theological matter. Can I ask one one question that I, will it will slightly derail us from the bio, You're fine. biographical Go. track? But while we have him here, because I love that answer, and so one thing, and what I love that you've what you've done in that answer, Jarvis, is you've said, "Hey, there are obvious." Um, I don't even want to say the word implications because I've heard you kind of 
Uh, Depends on um, what you mean by that. Yeah, I'm, yeah, fine yeah, with, yeah. I'm fine with it. I'm older and wiser now, so yeah. I'm fine with implications. <laughs> right, That's fine. All right, all right, all right. I think I heard you say you want to put your head through a wall when you heard that word. I must so, have been 35 when I said that. Yes, yes. We have a long history, don't we? Um, no, what... What the question is, Jarvis? What you've talked about is the application of this mm. huge theological mm. uh, principle and just the reality of what God is doing throughout the Bible, people of God, Jews, Gentiles, right? The applications to our present day context, and yet I find that some want to say, "Well, be careful mapping the Jew-Gentile problem onto black and white. Yeah. It's not one yeah. for one." And yeah. I think we've said very I've clearly said on this, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not one for one, but I think they go that. Some can go further than to say there is therefore no correlation or even implication application, which you're not saying, at least I don't understand you to be saying. Um, And so I guess what do you, when you get, how do we think through that, right? So I'm a legitimate Christian in a church and I'm just trying to encourage and, you know, exhort people to the love and unity Am I to stay away from any kind of Jew Gentile implication application? Um, because what I would see, yeah, I don't want to answer my own question. I want no, to no, let you answer good. the question. That's a great does question. That make, no, does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. Tell me if if you think I'm answering your question. First of all, I will I will want to say that I'm very much aware as a New Testament scholar, when people say there's not a direct one-on-one correlation, I'm very much aware of that. I very much agree with that. I spend, again, just to repeat for your listeners, I spend the vast majority of my time thinking about Paul's understanding of salvation in his Second Temple Jewish context. Uh, I published an essay, along with one of my PhD students, on the function of the word ethne, uh, which is often translated Gentiles, in both the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as well as places where it's used in the New Testament. So I'm very much aware that there's not a direct one-to-one correlation. I mean, I'm I'm surprised sometimes when people sort of like push back against uh, towards some of the things I say about uh, redemptive diversity as if I've never considered the fact that there's not a direct one-to-one correlation. I know you're not doing that. I'm just saying those people out there who are like, well, I've spent a lot of time in these ancient sources. Um, but one thing I want to say is, is that we are all reading the Bible from a very different social context than the one to which the Bible was written. And what we have to do is spend time in the text and in the world of the of the text to see what say for example Paul was dealing with when he was writing Galatians and then we've got a so we so we care about authorial intent and we start there at least in my hermeneutical approach but then we want to ask ourselves how does the message to the Galatians in the 1st century apply now to the 21st century and so certainly the issues Paul was dealing with, they were covenantal, right? The question was, can Gentiles, and a Gentile was everybody who wasn't Jewish from Paul's perspective, must Gentiles, non-Jews, become Jewish? Get circumcised if you were a male. Keep aspects of the law in order to gain entrance into the covenantal people of God. That's the question Paul's trying to answer. And Paul's answer is, no, in Christ Jesus, everything to which the law pointed has been realized and fulfilled. So the law, Galatians 3, was given as a temporary guarding until Christ would come so that Jews and Gentiles would be justified by faith in Christ. Okay, then. When you get to a place like Galatians 3.28, there's no Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free. We're all one in Christ. And other places where you have these exhortations to love one another, so on and so forth. Okay, how do those texts 
apply today? Well, in many ways, I would say one way would could be, or one way is, is that when we, if you live in a social location that has ethnic and racial disunity and division, that uh, and you and you read what Paul says about the Jew Gentile problem, which is not the same thing as the contemporary ethnic problem uh, that we find in our context. Because do you want to just give like? Here's why it's not the same. Well, it's not the same because it's it's not a covenantal issue, right? It's like and by that you mean I mean that the the problem in contemporary society uh, between blacks and whites has nothing to do with uh, who are and who are not the people of God. How does one become part of the people of God? Uh, even even when you get into like intra ethnic disputes, uh, it has nothing to do with covenantally must we do this to become part of. To, to worship the God of Israel or not. That's 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 the fundamental difference, is that... Not skin color, not... It's yeah. not skin color. It is not fundamental... What's happening in, in in antiquity is not fundamentally about skin color. It's, it's fundamentally about who are the people of God. There was always a vision for God to do something for the Gentiles. Isaiah outlines this. Um, and technically, Abraham, if we wanted to be technical, Abraham was not Jewish. He was a Gentile. And mm. from Abraham comes the Jewish people, right? Jacob, whose name is Israel, and so on and so forth. And so he's not dealing with skin color issues, right? He's dealing with covenantal issues. Can Gentiles, regardless of their skin color, can Gentiles become part of the people of God as Gentiles? Or must they keep aspects of the Mosaic Covenant? And Paul says, no, they need Christ, just like Jews. So then, for us today in the contemporary world... How do we apply that message? Because we must. If we're Christians who care about the living and breathing Word of God being applied to our lives and transforming us today, we have to think, yes, and I'm not afraid to use this word, creatively, carefully, wisely, within the boundaries of Scripture, how to apply these covenantal text today. And one application is, I think, transcends the first century context, which is that we in Christ Jesus must love one another by the power of the Spirit. That's where Paul goes in chapter mm-hmm. 5. Mm-hmm. Walk in the Spirit, 516. Uh, and a fruit of the Spirit, 522, is love. And uh, this idea, if you go back to Galatians 2, 11 through 14, where Peter was withdrawing from table fellowship, Peter Paul says to Peter, hey, you can't withdraw from Gentiles because you're afraid or whatever else reason you're withdrawing from them. Because you're when you do that, you're walking away from the gospel. The gospel brings different Ethnic groups together, regardless of skin color, brings ethnic different ethnic groups together in Christ Jesus. And so what I want to do as a Christian Bible reader is always ask the contemporary question, how does this message apply today? It, and quite frankly, and this is not unique to me, if all we do is historical analysis of texts, and say, this is what Paul meant in Galatia, or this is what this text meant in the ancient world, an atheist can do that. You don't need Jesus to do historical analysis. But if we are Christians who are filled with the Spirit, we want to do the careful exegesis, answer what the Jew-Gentile problem was from the text, but then how does that apply to me today? How does that, how does that move me to love you, Isaac, and to love you, Austin, and to love those who don't share my faith? How does it move me to love them in a way that is redemptive, regardless of tongue, tribe, uh, people group? vernacular, so on and so forth. We have a particular love for each other as believers, but we're also compelled to love our neighbors. And what Paul is getting at in Galatians, it seems to me, 
applies at least that way, even though it's not a direct one-to-one correlation between what he was dealing with and what we're dealing with in our contemporary moment in the United States. Sorry for that long answer, but that's how I would answer what I was looking for. Thank you. (laughs) Let me just tie a loop to a previous episode because you argued a couple weeks ago that if the power of the gospel transcends the Jew-Gentile question, how much more power should it have over our divisions? That's why. Exactly. And that's why, yes, that is the, that is why. Because if it's, if it can do that with the, with the, within the covenantal framework, how much more should it apply to the Yeah. And can I say one quick thing, since you brought, you, you asked the question and you said that, and it made me think of something. So, and we have to, we do have to remember that when we're talking about the, the contemporary racial and ethnic divide in, in the United States context, that's a Gentile versus Gentile problem, yeah. right? And that's another difference. Uh, and and but God is about the business of reconciling all things to Himself in Christ. Mm. So then, that's why I'm suggesting to you that what's happening in the biblical text is moving us outside our own particular sort of um, how should I say this uh, isolated cultural challenges to think globally about what God is doing, yes, locally, but throughout the world and how we can be a part of that in Christ Jesus by the Spirit as we proclaim and live the gospel redemptively. That's a good word, brother. Let me uh, let me ask one more question uh, as I derail this interview. Um, because one thing, one thing I just at least want to hear your thoughts on, because you mentioned I appreciate your carefulness in guarding uh, the uniqueness of the covenantal aspect, and this is what's going on uh, with God forming this people, Israel. Um, and I guess thoughts, I'm thinking out loud, yes and amen, but is it also going on things that are, let's say, if sin is a family, let's say, racism's cousins or brothers and sisters are fear of man, Mm. Galatians 2. Just ethnic pride, period, because God did form a people and ethnicity, right? And he's calling a chosen race um, uh, in 1 Peter 2 uh, that he's creating from the corners of the earth, right? And I'm not trying to map that word of race onto our modern conception of it. But I I guess what I'm asking is is it squarely... Is it all? I don't think you're saying, and I just want to hear you elaborate on this. I guess what I'm saying is I have a bit more space when someone's making the comparison or at least the analogy of, of the modern racial, racial problem to the Jew and Gentile to say, yeah, there was probably ethnic pride in Israel too. There was probably, see, and I'm not trying to read, you know, necessarily Jonah's hearts or motives, and there's a lot going on in that context, but I don't think. At least I'd like to be challenged on the notion that nationalism didn't exist then, even if not necessarily skin-based. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so I'm, I'm curious for your thoughts on that. I'm not trying to, again, I'm fine with this. I want to only guard the covenantal aspects of it and not just make it this flat one-to-one thing. Um, because I think what you're getting at is so important. It's just like, listen, we're trying to apply the Bible. We want to be careful in doing that. And that's exactly the conversation we're having. Um, and yet, I want to also say, yeah, in application, I just it wouldn't surprise me that it's that, uh, guarding these covenantal bounds that sincere Israelites were trying to do in their conscience. And I'm sure at times there was the flat out, we're us and you're, you're them, and we don't want you in. Which is just, to me, racism. I mean, all you had to do was throw skin color on top of that to get to racial strife and animus. Thoughts on any of that? Does that make sense, Austin? Yeah, yes, good question. So I have to wear my academic hat here. 
Okay. okay. For but I, I, but I, I might translate for. But listeners. I'm going to try to make it accessible. So I'm not going to speak over folks' heads, but I, over folks' heads. But I need to, I think, say some things with important nuance. So I, I, I think it is clear that when you're looking at the Hebrew Bible and, and your, your English Old Testament, that that God is is choosing a a people that he's identifying as Israel eventually, and that he is marking them off as the people of God by means of the Abrahamic sign, Genesis 17, which is folded within the Mosaic Covenant, Leviticus 12, verse 3, of circumcision. And then he gives, he delivers these people out of slavery, and he's leading them toward a promised land, and he's giving them a Torah at Sinai to mark them off as the people of God. And that there's nothing in that processing, of course, he elected and chose them according to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 7. There's nothing in that process that speaks, I, I would argue, that, that suggests that there's any kind of ethnic pride going on. But, but God graciously gave them uh, status as his people, and that through this particular people, God is going to bless the nations, right? And he gives them the law after he graciously delivered them out of slavery, yes, not as a badge by which to earn their way to heaven, but as a mark that identifies them as God's people. And, and you, you get glimpses, however, don't you, along the way in like a Jonah, for example. He recognizes that, that, that if, if he preaches to these Gentiles, they might get saved. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's something hesitant there. He doesn't want these sinners to get saved. But I think the kind of pride that comes from Jewish privilege that I think you're alluding to, you find that popping up, I think, more explicitly within the Second Temple period, the period between Malachi uh, leading into and, and Matthew, but then leading into uh, the New Testament era. And so what you find in the Second Temple period is you find that there are Jews who are saying some of the things that you're suggesting with respect to exclusivism, that... Um, that there's at least one particular Jewish text I'm thinking about right now that's it's not in the Bible. It's, it's, it's a part of Second Temple Jewish literature where there's no hope for Gentiles. Gentiles are going to hell. There's no hope, period. But then there are other Jewish texts that support the idea that, that Gentiles who proselytize to Judaism could have life in the age to come. And then, and then so, so when you look at the, the sources in early Judaism, you see a diversity of views about all sorts of things. And, and one of those things is you see a diversity of views about Gentiles. Now, you do have what some would say is a majority view that, that for, for the most part, Gentiles are, are on the outside unless they proselytize and come into the, to a Jewish way of life. But I would personally be hesitant to, to, and I don't think you're doing this, but I would be hesitant to say that uh, any national pride that they have as Israel is is analogous to, or is the same thing as as racial pride that we have in our context. Because as you very well know, who wrote a very good book on on race conversations, is that the whole construct of race that we operate with in the United States doesn't even Correct. exist in the biblical context. Correct. What you do have in the biblical context is this, con this concept of otherness. And Gentiles, and, and this is how in Jewish sources, a sinner is defined in certain Jewish sources in, in these ways. A sinner is, some, is a Jew who doesn't obey Torah, okay? Or 
Gentiles, by definition, are sinners. That's your lot as a Gentile. If you're Jewish, you can become a sinner by violating Torah in, in two-temple Judaism. But by, by virtue of your origin as a Gentile, you are a sinner, you see. So then that pops up in how they then begin to relate to Gentiles. So the kind of thing Peter does in Galatians 2, 11 through 14, you find that in other places in, in Jewish sources where there's this lack of desire to uh, have table fellowship or to associate with. But at the same time, you still have Jews and Gentiles doing business together, Jews serving in Gentile military, so on and so forth. But the basic point I want to get at here is to say is that there is, and this is the phrase I would use, there's eth there is ethnic pride in early Judaism uh, in two-temple period, but it's not the, the, the same kind of thing that we find in our contemporary context. I don't think you're saying that, but I just wanted to make that point clear because what I want to try to do in everything that I say about these issues is I want to make sure I'm doing two things. Uh, I'm trying to do two things at the same time. I'm trying, on the one hand, answer the question, what do the sources actually say, uh, Jewish sources say, Jews actually thought about themselves and about Gentiles? And then how, how does that reality help me understand what Paul's dealing with when he constantly is dealing with this Jew-Gentile division. In Acts 15, for example, you get the, the brothers saying Gentiles must basically become Jewish or else they can't be justified. So that's there. And those are Christian people saying that, not just Jews, but Christian Jews are saying that. And then how does that apply, thirdly, to our contemporary context? So ethnic pride is definitely there. Yeah. Yes. Really, nationalistic I mean, pride—you can even say there. Right. I, I don't want to say the word nationalism because of our contemporary right, moment. Right, 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 but, right. But, yeah. but and even when you say yes, right. Yeah. I want to be careful with all those words, Jewish privilege and all that. But it's not. Yeah. But it's not. It's not everywhere in every text. You right. do find it in spaces, though. Right. And I guess what I, I guess what I'm the basic thing I'm trying to guard against because I think we've guarded against one direction very clearly on the show. I don't want to guard against thinking partiality started in. 1776. Oh, absolutely. Or, right, or 1619. Absolutely. And it's just like, yeah, people have been partial, I think, since, since the, the beginning. Since the, the fall. beginning. Since the fall. Yeah. And if it mapped on to class, if it mapped on to other... I'm just saying, I don't want to act as if... I think, and I like the way you spoke about it, everything God was doing in setting up his universe and his people, we obviously only understand to be right. But And when that got into the hands of fallen men, I think... I think it's not a far stretch at all to say, yeah, partiality existed and it's taken on a lot of ugly manifestations and different manifestations yes. that are somehow related over this since Eden. Yes. Agreed? Oh, oh yes. Okay, that's so that, what I'm trying I've, to get. So yeah, let me, yeah if yeah. I could, let me just piggyback on that and say, yes, I, I think uh, this is what because I... Because that's where I don't want to just say it's only unique. It doesn't therefore apply. It's like, yeah, absolutely. Well, be, people are real complicated. Yeah. And yeah. I'm with you on that. Yeah, I, I, uh, one of the Makes things that I'm getting at. Yeah, one of the things I've tried to to argue is that the division that we're outlining in our conversation, uh, it it starts when sin enters into creation, and and which then, is why we need a theological understanding, which we were talking about in this episode we did on what is race. Yeah. Sorry, no, no, this that's is, good. Yeah, yeah. And and but and then sin takes on a life of its own. Uh, so that you, what is what is ultimately 
beautiful, which is God in, in the in the garden before the fall, God commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply. It seems to me from the very beginning that God's intent was to have many tongue, tri tongues, tribes, peoples, and nations because they would be fruitful, multiply. But what happens when sin enters creation is that um, that multiplicity is now alienated because of sin, and um, and it's looked upon with contempt and partiality. Yeah. And one of the reasons God gives the law, I think, in, in marking off Israel is is to begin beginning, beginning to unfold. Well, Genesis three fifteen is where it begins to unfold it. But through uh, the promise in Genesis three fifteen, Abraham, David, you know, giving of the law, he's he's zooming in on this on this redemption that he's going to do to bring the nations together in Christ, and and Israel is a part of that story. Right. But seems to me one of the things even Jesus, in a unique way. Sorry, if, yeah. But but with, but with to your point, it seems to me that one of the things Jesus is in fact critiquing when he when he says the kingdom of God is at hand, Messiah is here, uh, is he's critiquing this this misunderstanding that some had uh, in the Jewish community about what God was going to do. Most of his ministry in Matthew's gospel focuses on the Jews, and along the way you get a glimpse of the fact that he's going to Gentiles. But then at the end, with the resurrection, he says, look, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth, Daniel 7 language, go go take the gospel to all the nations. And, and one of the things the apostles are up against a lot, especially Paul, is how do Jews and Gentiles relate to each other? And this this partiality issue, and then it's not. But, it's, but here's the thing: this is why so this is why it needs to be something redemptive that solves it. It's not just an ethnic partiality. Impartiality. That's right. James, yeah, has talking to Jews who are Christians. There's impartiality or partiality. Yeah, partiality shown toward the rich, to the to the uh, dehumanization of the poor, and so to your point that that. Partiality has been a part of the story ever since the fall happened, and and it it's magnified as history progresses. I think uh, in the biblical narrative, and, and and even to the point I think what you find in the in the second temple period is you have uh, Jews in the diaspora trying to figure out you know how do they survive as Jews in a Hellenistic society where they've always been under the thumb of other nations, where other nations have treated them with contempt and partiality. And, and so you do get this these these boundaries that are drawn up to try to help keep that keep their Jewish identity alive. But but then that we, we see I think with the Apostle Paul that some of those boundaries are are uh, going against the grain of what God has, has done in Christ. And he's trying not to erase ethnic identity, but he's making the point that in Christ is transformed so that the boundary markers are now redrawn in Christ and that there should be no partiality based on ethnic division so that Amen. Jews don't have to become Gentiles to be part of the people of God. They need Christ. And Gentiles don't need to become Jews to be part of the people of God. We need Christ. And, and in Christ Jesus, that dividing wall, Ephesians 2, is now broken down. And how we apply that, though, going back to the, to the, to the, to the point... How we apply that is going to look different for, for we're in Birmingham now. For us in Birmingham, it's going to look different for for me in Louisville, where I where I live, and, and it looked different for G Gentiles and Jews in the first century. Amen, amen. Well, let me just say three things, and then I'll 
let Austin run his podcast. Um, we'll go back to your life and say, hey, here's when I became a Kentucky basketball fan and all these things. Or we'll just pray and split this into 14 episodes because we're surely running along. Three thoughts or a few thoughts. Number one, thank you. I've, I mean, we aim to be biblical, clear, helpful, and hopeful. And I think you did all four of those things uh, in that TED Talk. So but we learned you. it from him. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thank you. You're so, too gracious. You're too gracious. So thank you. I find, and, I, and I really do feel like wh- I now have something to hand people on. Like, does Jew and Gentile equal black and white? This is the conversation. No, right, no, right, yeah, right. But, right. but this is the conversation. But then how do we learn from it and, and not – not take that no to extent to shut down helpful conversations about applying God's word to our modern context. On our modern context, what I love is that you talked about Christ is God in Christ is trying to reconcile all things Mm -hmm. to himself. And it just, I think it's because we're in Birmingham, Alabama in 2022 and you have two African-American men on, you know, on these microphones and you should, it, sh- it speaks to the power of race and the presence of race and mm. even the American conscience mm. consciousness mm. of of we like we have to do this this is so baked into what how we think about groups and people mm. in our own history no. we have to deal with this and apply God's word to this mm. on some level no. and so but it's just it's striking that it's sad that sin is so big throughout history that whether it be class or gender or whatever these dividing walls may be, uh, that Paul's not erasing but transforming, it also speaks to the bigness of God's grace and his power and his mission to reconcile all mm. things, to, 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 tra- to make all things new. You know, Coloss- in, in Colossians 1, he's just like, I'm out for all things, not just ethnicity and racial divides mm. but all divides mm. in christ so mm. and that's where it bakes down i think very simply to love and hatred it's just like hey i want y'all to love each other and that's got a whole bunch of applications implications for basically everything you do as relates mm. to another person mm. how you think how you speak how you evaluate and of course race is baked into that all those things because how people thought or spoke of or view others, that's what race was created in some sense for, to give them categories, albeit sinful ones, to evaluate and relate to one another. And uh, But we don't want to then say everything God has done in creating different ethnicities is therefore bad, but Christ is redeeming it, mm-hmm. which is what I love Amen. about your work. Red- we want something redemptive, yeah. not just burn down the house and we'll start over and just be genderless, ethnic, ethnicityless beings who somehow operate in harmony and utopia. No, we're Christians, and Christ has redeemed a whole lot of us in different time periods, and He's out to do that, and it will culminate in all things being made new in Christ. Mm. Amen, bro. Yeah. Well, uh, Austin, what do you think? I think we want to let Dr. Williams rest before tonight, and I want to leave some meat on the bone for conversations we are about to have. So if you don't mind, would you close us in prayer, and then Isaac, you can pray as well. Our Father, we are thankful for the cross and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're so thankful that in Christ Jesus, you have stripped 
the principalities and powers of the air of their power. We thank you that you've conquered the power of sin and death and hell, that you've dethroned the devil. We thank you that he is, although he is a roaring lion going to and fro on the earth, seeking whom he may devour, we thank you that he is also under the under the foot of Christ, as Christ's crucifixion and resurrection stand on the throat of the devil. And Father, we pray that our hope would be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness as we seek to live redemptively, to preach redemptively, to love redemptively, to have awkward conversations about ethnicity and race redemptively, as we seek to forgive redemptively, and as we seek to build something beautiful. May we want to build what you want to build, and may we not want to build what you don't want to build. And we pray that you would help us to try to build things in the power of the Spirit, rooted in your saving action in Christ, in his cross, and in his resurrection. And Father, be with these brothers as they continue to lead us in that, with this ministry and in the ministry of their church, and be with all of those brothers and sisters who are listening, who care deeply about how your gospel changes lives and moves us to love each other well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus' cross. We thank you for the hope it gives us. We thank you for the love your spirit is working in us. We thank you for the picture you've given us of Christ reconciling all things to himself. Help us to be faithful actors in that great drama. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening, friends. As always, you can find more about our work at youwepray.com. Can I just say one last quick thing while the record button is still on? There were really good questions Austin was going to ask about just Jarvis in his space. I just want to, for for folks who are listening to him and I, what you were talking about, it was just like, I never imagined myself being a professor. You know, I'm thinking of young minorities or whoever who was like, I just didn't even know that was a thing. And he, just good thoughts. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot we could could have talked about, about you maybe being... Uh, I'm not putting these words in your mouth, but just has that been lonely? Has that been hard? Are there people who look like you in your field? All those things, those are good questions that you should pursue answers to. Mm. And I think Jarvis, you've just been a model of just, I'm going to keep going mm. in my space and in my field. Mm. So keep doing that, yeah, brother. Thank you. So, thanks. As always, find more about our work at our website, youwepray.com. Grace and peace. Oh.